Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. Now for our What in the World segment. The Muslim world is too often plagued by dual threats, extremism on the one hand, authoritarianism on the other. But the largest Muslim-majority country in the world has long served as a rebuke to that narrative. I'm talking about Indonesia, a country where Muslim piety, pluralism, and democracy have coexisted for years. But things appear to be changing. A new politicized, hardline version of Islam is gaining ground, catalyzed in part by the growing influence of Saudi Arabia and its money. That hardline strain has already taken its toll on the upcoming national elections this month, where the incumbent Joko Widodo faces a tough challenge. A moderate when he was elected in 2014, Joko drew comparisons to President Obama as a relative unknown who inspired hope. He is not the first choice for many Islamist hardliners whose power is now ascendant. There is no more revealing moment of their growing power than the largest protests in Indonesian history. As the journalist Margaret Scott writes in the New York Review of Books, the unrest happened during the 2016 campaign for re-election of Jakarta's governor, whose nickname is Ahok. He is by descent Chinese, a small ethnic minority in Indonesia. Its largest ethnicity is Javanese. Ahok is also a Christian. In a 2016 speech, he said that the Quran does not require Muslims to vote for Muslim candidates. A report by the Institute for Policy Analysis of Conflict details how a diverse network of Islamist groups pounced on this statement. They rallied their followers against Ahok, accusing him of ridiculing their religion and demanding his arrest on charges of blasphemy. According to recently published research, preachers told their congregants support for Ahok would bar their entry into heaven. Organizers stoked resentment against the ethnic Chinese, many of whom belong to Indonesia's business class. The movement reached its apex in December of 2016, when more than 700,000 Indonesians flooded the streets of Jakarta. Ahok was put on trial days later. It was a stunning moment in which the government, against its democratic principles, likely capitulated to growing religious intolerance. So who was behind this massive display? One of the main organizers was Bakhtiar Nasir, a camera-ready Saudi-educated activist with more than a million Instagram followers. He represents the new guard of conservative Islam in Indonesia. He and his allies promote a puritanical version of Islam known as Salafism, which has spread through the Muslim world with the help of Saudi money. Through schools and the media, the goal is to transform Indonesian society for generations to come. In April 2017, Ahok lost the elections. In May, he was convicted of blasphemy and handed a two-year prison sentence. As Scott notes, no matter what happens in the upcoming election, the protests transform politics. Last year, Joko picked as his running mate a conservative cleric who had played a critical role in the protests against Ahok, the former governor. 
But the protests also changed the public. Before the agitation, 42% of Indonesian Muslims believed only Muslims should hold political office. That's bad enough. Last year, well after the protests died down, it was more than 54%, according to the forthcoming research Scott cites. What all of this shows is that religion is emerging as a new fault line of identity politics in Indonesia, says Peter Mumford of the Eurasia Group. Indonesia has long been a moderate model in a chaotic, authoritarian, and dysfunctional Muslim world. These trends threaten all of that. Next on GPS, what would a world run by women look like? Better than our current world, run mostly by men? It's a provocative question that the great editor Tina Brown has been thinking about. I'll talk to her when we come back. We all know that America's tech giants often dominate conversation about the world's biggest companies. But we've learned something new about the competition this week, and it brings me to my question. What is the world's most profitable company? Apple, Alibaba, ExxonMobil, or Saudi Aramco? Stay tuned and we'll tell you the correct answer. My book of the week is Kimberly Clausing's Open, The Progressive Case for Free Trade, Immigration, and Global Capital. I wish every Democratic candidate would read this book. It's a highly intelligent, fact-based defense of the virtues of an open, competitive economy and society. And now for the last look. 900 million voters, 10 million election officials, 1 million polling stations. This is the Indian general election, the world's largest exercise in democracy. It will begin on Thursday And in order to accommodate the gargantuan needs of the Indian electorate, it will take place in seven stages over six weeks. During that time, election workers will span out across the country, carrying electronic voting machines to remote mountain villages and tiny waterlogged islands. They will hike in the Himalayan mountains, take boats through the Sundarban mangroves, and even ride elephants in unpaid forests, all to ensure that every voter has access. You see, the law dictates there be a polling place within two kilometers of every Indian home. In 2009, a polling place was even set up in the Gir forest of Gujarat for a single voter. This will become one of history's most expensive elections. Estimates say candidates will spend a whopping $7 billion. Now, India often falls short of its liberal and democratic principles, but every five years, the mammoth mechanics of its parliamentary election remind us just how much this country has invested in democracy. The answer to my GPS challenge is D, Saudi Aramco. For the first time this week, the oil giant shone a light on its secretive finances, revealing a profit of over $111 billion last year. That is nearly double the next most profitable company in the world, Apple, which made a $59 billion profit. The state-owned oil company released this financial information ahead of a bond sale. That money will partially finance Aramco's purchase of a huge stake in a chemical company currently controlled by the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, freeing up $70 billion in cash for Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's ambitious economic diversification plan. This deal will also help distance Aramco from the whims of the oil market. The prospectus revealed that in 2016, a year of low oil prices, the company's profits were only $13 billion. 
The prospectus also highlighted some of what the company sees as risks to its success, which ranged from the rise of renewable energy and changing environmental regulations to geopolitical events like public unrest or terrorist attacks. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.